Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to another episode of our Classic Hollywood Memories podcast. Yesterday, we did an episode on Clark Gable and the, his cinematic legacy and achievements in Hollywood during the Golden Age. And I mentioned a little bit about his collaboration and pictures with Joan Crawford. And altogether, they did seven movies during their prime years in the 1930s. And so it makes sense that today I wanted to do an episode on Joan Crawford and just discuss the impact and legacy that her film career had. And when you think about her longevity, from becoming a big star in the silent era, she actually became a big star in 1928 with the movie Our Dancing Daughters, a silent feature. But from 1925, from when she first started appearing in movies, to 1928, that's about four, three years of just taking a series of bit roles and nondescript appearances, trying to look for that big break, you know, working with MGM at the time. But then she finally got her big break, her first starring role. She became an overnight sensation with Our Dancing Daughters in 1928. And then she did a couple of other talkies after, uh, excuse me, uh, silent pictures after that. Her first talking picture was 1929's Untamed with Robert Montgomery. And so obviously already Joan was a big star in MGM. And this also helps to correct the... Uh, erroneous viewpoint that many people have. Some people think that Betty Davis, who, you know, those that don't know the history, assume that Betty Davis was a bigger star than Joan Crawford was or became a star before her, but that's not the case at all. Joan was already a big star for a number of years before Betty Davis first got her breakthrough role. So 1928, Our Dancing Daughters, she became a big star and she started a huge uh, level of success with MGM in the 1930s. And she played a lot of the roles that were very similar to her upbringing. She was raised in abject poverty. She was born in 1904. And of course, Joan Crawford was not her real name. Her real name was Lucille Faye Lassure. And she was born in 1904. She was born in poverty. And so she dealt through a lot of hardships in her life. And a lot of the movie roles that she took in the 1930s mirrored that. The woman who was raised in poverty had to go through hardships just to get what she wanted in life, but finally made it to the top. And a lot of those 30s resonated well, and a lot of those movies in the 30s resonated well with the audiences because of the Great Depression. A lot of people were just struggling to get by. It was a very terrible time in you know American history, actually global history, because it affected all the developed countries. But when you think about how her roles inspired a lot of people, a lot of people could relate to Joan at that time, struggling along, trying to fight, be diligent to get your big break in life. And a lot of the movies, she did that. She started off in poverty. Then, she, of course, you see her in wealth and opulence with beautiful gowns. And so that's what a lot of the women in those days really wanted. So Joan Crawford you know, struck a chord with a lot of the movie audiences back then. So when you look at her movie catalog here in the 1930s with MGM, major star, she acted with all the major leading men at that time, Robert Montgomery, who one day I'm going to do an episode about him because his career is also overlooked as well. She did movies with Robert Montgomery, of course, the seven collaborations with Clark Gable. Um, she did movies with Herbert Marshall, had a great career, and actually... Fred Astaire's first uh, movie, his debut role, was actually in a movie with a musical with Joan Crawford and Clark Gable, which is um, Dancing Lady, which came out in 1932. 
and of course there. So if you ever heard of Joan Crawford and Fred Astaire having a dance number together, it is true. And you'll see that scene there if you want to look it up on YouTube or just uh, get that movie. You'll be able to see. And she, Joan Crawford held her own with Fred Astaire. It was not too bad at all. She was very talented. You know, a lot of people look at Joan Crawford and they characterize her career as not being a great actress, but being a great movie star. Even Betty Davis alluded to that fact. Now, that's not exactly disparaging to say. What it's trying to say is that while Joan maybe was not a thespian as other actors and actresses were who came from the stage on Broadway, Joan Crawford did radiate on screen. She had a luminous uh, aura about her. She had a personality that just you gravitated to her on the screen. So when you look at her, maybe she didn't have her work on her acting craft, let's say, let's say Catherine Hepburn or Betty Davis did. But you can't deny the fact that whenever you saw a movie, Joan Crawford was going to dominate that scene and dominate that picture. And of course, she held her own with all the male characters on screen. She's one of the few actresses that could dominate a movie with another equally impressive male lead. So in that case, definitely Joan Crawford was a great movie star. So again, let's look back a little bit on her movie uh, career development in the 1930s. She did a lot of those um, making in, you know, struggling in life and then finally get the big break into wealth. And a lot of those romance movies in the 1930s, which were very popular. But when you look at some of the other pictures that she did, like, for example, there's a couple of them that really come out at you. You have 1932's Grand Hotel, which was a landmark achievement because it was one of the first movies where you had an all-star ensemble cast of the top performers of their day. You know, now it's more common to see that you'll see these movies like Ocean's Eleven, Ocean's Twelve, you know, these movies with, you know, big uh, A-list stars. But Grand Hotel was one of the first pictures to do that, to popularize that. You know, in that picture you had... Uh, the great Greta Garbo, who was probably a bigger star than Joan Crawford at that time in the world, actually. You know, Lionel Barrymore, Wallace Beery, you know, and Joan Crawford, of course, was in that. And so that movie was terrific for MGM, made a lot of money for them. And it set the template for similar productions down the line as other studios emulated that uh, idea and also reaped the rewards of it. And then in 1932, she did another picture, which also has developed a mythic status, was 1932's Letty Linton. And Letty Linton is interesting. This movie has not been produced on DVD, hasn't been shown on TV for decades. You know, it's been in a legal entanglement for over five, six decades. And what's interesting about Letty Linton is that besides the legal issues... There's also something appealing about that, that a lot of people, you know, had an impact actually on culturally in America at that time. In that movie, there was a famous white evening dress that she wore in that picture that, believe it or not, actually started a fashion trend in America at that time. And so a lot of women started buying this dress. It was very popular. So it was around that time in the 1930s and that art deco glamour opulence that was very popular in MGM and other studios it had a big impact on the fashion trends at that time. So Letty Linton has not been seen since. It hasn't been on DVD. It's been on this illegal entanglement for decades. And there was rumors a few years ago that Warner Brothers was trying to get involved and see if they can somehow resolve uh, financially this legal entanglement. But as of this date, nothing has been done with that. So 
all those classic movie buffs like you and I, we're still going to have to wait to see if that's ever resolved. I'm, I'm pretty sure one day it will. And I'm pretty sure Warner Brothers, whoever has the rights to it, will be able to put a package, maybe a documentary explaining that process. So hopefully looking forward to that someday in the future. So then in the 1930s, you see this is her, her dominant era with MGM. She was one of the top stars from 1932 to 1938. She was in a lot of romance pictures. As I mentioned, she did the musical Dancing Lady with Clark Gable and Fred Astaire. But a lot of those were just pretty much the Joan playing that role of being a servant or raised in poverty. Then she finally gets her big break. She marries up into status, marries a wealthy man and all the other issues and pitfalls that she had to overcome. And as you see, a lot of them, they have aged well. Some of them were screwball comedies and she did very well in them. MGM made a lot of money off her pictures. She did terrifically. But there's one of them that I want to single on, like a few of them here. Like, for example, 1937 Mannequin. Here you can get a good idea of just how good of an actress Joan Crawford was. She gets overlooked a lot in that regard, as I mentioned previously. But in Mannequin in 1937, with Spencer Tracy, who was also coming into his own at this time. In fact, he won an Oscar that year for another movie, which was not Mannequin. But Spencer Tracy of course, was the one of the dominant male actors of that time. And in this one, Mannequin was good because it, like as I mentioned previously, it embodied the life that Joan Crawford had and that a lot of women in America were dealing with, you know, struggling with poverty, struggling with family issues, but trying to look for that escape, trying to fantasize about getting a better life. And so in this movie, Joan Crawford plays a woman who's working in a factory, who lives in abject poverty with her family, you know, a lazy father, you know, overbearing brother. It's just tough for her and an oppressed mother. So here she's always fantasizing. She's dating a nice looking guy, hoping that hoping that one day they'll be able to get married and have a better life. And so it gets to the point where she's just just frustrated with where her life is headed that she just, you know, pretty much just demands that her boyfriend marry her now and start a new life. And that's what he did. But of course, in this movie, he was not a good character. He was not someone that was going to give her the life that she wanted because he did things in a shady fashion. So then what happens? Of course, as I mentioned before, Joan trying to find her way in life in this movie, she ends up marrying or getting involved with Spencer Tracy's character, who was a wealthy guy at that time in the movie. And they get together and, you know, one thing leads to another. A lot of snafus, as you'll see in, in the movie. And then, of course, they end up getting together. And of course, it was done for the uh, for the wrong reasons. She, of course, wanted to get out of her poverty. She wanted to have an established life. And it's interesting that a lot of people, a lot of women in that time did decisions like that because of the circumstances around them. But it was really cool because Jones conveyed a lot of sentimentality, a lot of emotion that you didn't see in a lot of her pictures. And so this is one I think that if you want to see a little bit of depth in Jones' movie career, her acting, prowess you definitely want to see that one mannequin 1937 it's already on dvd and i think that's the one that you definitely enjoy i certainly enjoyed that one and then of course in 1939 joan crawford had one of her most well-known roles and it was a collaborative effort similar in the vein to a grand hotel you had an ensemble of some of the most talented female actresses of that of that era in uh, 1939's The Women, you had the great Norma Shearer, 
who was actually a rival to Joan Crawford in, the, in MGM in the 1930s, Rosalind Russell, Joan Fontaine, Paulette Goddard, you know, a terrific picture, a legendary picture. But before The Women was made in 1939, Joan Crawford was actually listed in a famous article, which has become legendary. She was referred to as box office poison, along with Katherine Hepburn, Mae West, and a couple of other noteworthy performers from that time. Now, what that was saying was not that they couldn't act, but their pictures had undergone, you know, a lot of hardships or didn't make a lot of, they weren't as profitable as some of their earlier pictures. So at that time, the studios had a bottom line to adhere to. They had to have money makers. So if their pictures are not doing well, you didn't have a long shelf life. You either had to produce or you would get phased out in favor of another up and coming star. So right there, this is where Joan Crawford, aside from her, this is like her second obstacle in Hollywood. Her first one in the silent era, she was trying to get her big break. She finally achieved that with Our Dancing Daughters in 1928. But then right here in 1939, after a, a string of success with MGM in the 1930s, one of the biggest stars in Hollywood, then she kind of dropped off a little bit there. A couple of her movies prior to 1938 didn't do well, so she needed a big hit. And then right here in 1939 with the women, she certainly got that. She catapulted her, her propelled her career once again. But it's interesting because going back to Norma Shearer, Joan Crawford always complained that a lot of the big roles that she felt she was entitled to, she lost out on them to Norma Shearer because Norma Shearer was, nom was married excuse me, to Irving Thalberg, who was one of the top producers at MGM. So she always felt that even though Joan Crawford was probably the bigger star, more successful out of the two, but since Joan, Norma Shearer was married to Irving Thalberg, she had the first choice of some of the better scripts. So obviously that antipathy, that rivalry, it actually, you can see it on screen in the women. You'll be able, you could feel that tension between the two. And that's why this movie was so good because that behind the scenes drama was able to be conveyed on screen. So that's a great picture to see just to appreciate just how great Joan Crawford was. Then another picture that she did after the women was actually in 1941. This is one that I liked a lot. I appreciated it was um, When Ladies Meet. Well, this one doesn't get a lot of review, as good reviews as the earlier version, because this was a remake. This is one of my better Joan Crawford pictures. In this one, she's a struggling novelist and she's has a good friendship with um, Robert Taylor's character who one day I'm going to do an episode on him as well. But in this one, she's having an affair with a married uh, writer, which is Herbert Marshall, who's terrific in a lot of the roles that he played. So Greer Garson in this one is playing the wife, the dutiful wife of Herbert Marshall. And of course, Joan Crawford is having an affair with, the, with her husband. And this movie was good because of the dynamics of it. You know, of course, at this time, Joan Crawford was already, you could say, on her way out. She was no longer the main star at uh, MGM. Greer Garson was the top star, at, female star at MGM from when she came in in 1939. So it was actually like a, a changing of the guard, so to speak. But Joan Crawford, being the professional that she is, someone that's trying to resurrect her career, she went along with it. So, you know, you could see in a lot of their scenes, you can sense the... The, you know, the, the chemistry was very powerful and that one you could feel it, especially like towards the ending. I'm not going to give away the plot, but I definitely recommend you see it because, you know, Herbert Marshall was great. But I like I just Joan Crawford just 
resonates with everyone when you see all the things that she went through, you know, in her personal life and you could see it on screen. And she conveyed a lot of emotion, vulnerability. I mean, she was really good on screen when you the camera hones in on her eyes and she was just very powerful, her scenes. And you could actually, instead of condemning her character, you actually feel sorry for her. And that's, how, that's just the mark of a good actress right there. So when ladies meet in 1941, that's when you definitely will have to see. And the other two other movies in the 1940s, right before she made her transition out of MGM, that she made Reunion in France in 1942 with John Wayne and Above Suspicion with Fred McMurray. Those are two adventure movies, you know, romance as well which I say, think says a lot about Joan Crawford and her abilities. And so that's those two more that you got to see. And then now, of course, Joan Crawford, her career was she was already done with MGM. They were already moving on without her. And so obviously she was facing another plateau. How was she going to get out of this and resurrect her career? So then 1945, she goes over to Warner Brothers, where her rival Betty Davis is at. And it's interesting because, as you guys saw in Feud, Oh, it alluded to a lot of the issues that Betty Davis had with Joan. They attribute that to Joan Crawford marrying Frank Tone, another successful actor at that time in the 1930s. And there was rumors that Betty Davis had um, an affair or was interested in Frank Tone, but that she opposed, apparently claims that Joan Crawford came and took him away from her. So they say that's where a lot of the origins of the animosity come from. But, you know, like I say, we'll never know. There's other theories that have been put out there that have been postulated. So, but that's, it's interesting to think about that one because in 1935, Betty Davis won her first Oscar with Frank Chatone in the movie Dangerous. So interesting. We'll, we'll never know uh, for sure. But yeah, anyway, so she goes here to Warner Brothers in 1945, and the very first role that she gets, Betty Davis claims that this role was offered to her first, but she rejected it. But lo and behold, for Joan Crawford, it was another parachute for her fla flailing career. And she won an Oscar in Mildred Pierce, a terrific uh, film noir drama with uh, the great Anne Bleeth, Zachary Scott, uh, Jack Carson, another great performer. And this movie was terrific. And here, Mildred, uh, Joan Crawford plays a woman who's trying very hard to find her way in life. She's uh, struggling after the marriage that she had and ends, ends in divorce. She has to raise her two daughters. And she ends up working as a waitress and, of course, getting involved with the wrong kind of man, but who ends up giving her her big break in life. She's able to build a restaurant and all the dramas that ensues with uh, trying to raise her oldest daughter and then, of course, the romance um, drama with uh, Zachary Scott's character. And, of course, that ending is terrific. And it's just, this one is told in flashback, and Joan was great in this movie. But I believe, too, the plot itself was great. And I could see any other actress as well doing well in this feature. But Joan deserved the Oscar that year. It was definitely a great comeback vehicle for her. So that's the classic, the first foremost classic you have to see from her movie catalog. And then from 1945 to 1950, she was uh, continued her string of resurgence. She did Humoresque, which I saw yesterday with, Joan, uh, with uh, John Garfield. And of course, Garfield dominated this role. But Joan, again, she was a woman who was married, was having an affair with John Garfield's character. But it's hard to condemn her in the sense that you feel so sorry for her character because obviously she's in a loveless marriage. And she's trying to find something 
that she never received. And of course, she's trying to buy the affections of this young man. And of course, they get up, end up getting involved. But he's so attached to his career as a musician. And of course, she emotionally is not getting what she wanted, the love that she craved in her life. So the ending, of course, in that one is powerful, too. And I don't want to give that away. But that, again, shows the uh, acting range that Joan Crawford had, uh, Hugh Moresque, in 1946. And then, of course, she continued her success. She was nominated for another Oscar in 1947, Possessed, with Van Heflin, who was another underrated performer. And then, of course, continued it with Daisy Kenyon, Dana Andrews, uh, another terrific movie. So that one has also, you know, as a film noir, has also done well. Uh, Flamingo Road. So she had like a string here of successes here that she did very well. But then here's one that I like personally. In 1950, Harriet Craig. This one she co-starred with Wendell Corey. And in this one, she plays a domineering uh, wife, imperious, who only cares about material things and about controlling everyone around her. And here she was terrific. Uh, here, I believe she could have won an Oscar. This, this was a good role. This movie is a little underrated in comparison to some of her earlier work. But this is one I think you definitely should see just to see how Joan Crawford's acting range continued to evolve from when she first started out to the modern era. And so it's interesting here. Here, you don't have sympathy for her character at all. She was just a tough, you know, domineering control freak. And but you, it, this movie was great. You could see how she was talented here. She showed her range in this one. So that's one that you'll definitely be entertained by. And then, of course, she continued on. She got another her final Oscar nomination in 1952 for Sudden Fear. But of course, as you could see, gradually, you know, the. Hollywood was changing. The studio era was fragmenting. Now there was a lot of up-and-coming new stars that were coming on. So some of the movies that she did here didn't exactly help her career, but it kept her in the limelight. You know, in some of these movies, as the years have passed, they've actually gained a better appreciation. For example, like Johnny Guitar, um, Autumn Leaves in 1956. So she she, she of course, extended her career as a pro that she had to be. As you know, it mirrored her whole life. She was a fighter. She always had to work hard to get whatever she wanted in her life. And of course, she did that. Of course, in hindsight, some of the ones that she did later on didn't exactly help her. Like, you know, of course, uh, concluding her career with the movie Trog. That was not how uh, a legend should close a career. But, you know, we don't know what her financial situation was. We don't know exactly the reasons why a lot of the stars at that time started accepting these inferior roles. And inferior scripts, but they had to. So she did that. And of course, you know, few talked about the the whole drama behind the scenes of the 1962 classic, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. And it's messed up here because this movie symbolizes uh, what happened with Joan Crawford's career, especially in relation to Betty Davis. See, Betty Davis was nominated for an Oscar for Best Actress, but Joan Crawford was not. And, you know, it's kind of debatable. I understand that maybe you wouldn't nominate both performers from that movie, but I feel like Joan Crawford's performance was just as equal to Betty Davis in that sense. So, you know, when you look at it there, Joan Crawford, you know, was a major star. If you had to say the foremost dominant actresses from Hollywood's golden era were Katherine Hepburn, Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, and Barbara Stanwyck. So... You know, obviously, those are the four that set the standard at that time. I mean, I don't think acting-wise, I, I still believe that Joan Crawford was like on a tier below uh, Catherine and Betty, and even Barbara Stanwyck to a certain degree. But 
she was a movie star personified. I mean, she pretty much from the silent era all the way to the advent of the talkies, all the way to the studio era, and even to the TV age. She still continued up all the way to the 1970s, you know, right before she died, you know, of cancer. And so when you think about all that she went through, her great career, I feel like a lot of her roles are overlooked because of her rivalry with Betty Davis. There's a lot of Betty Davis fans out there and feud, you know, added even more to that. And of course, we can't talk about Joan Crawford without talking about what her daughter, Christina Crawford, wrote in that book, Mommy Dearest. And that movie, of course, with Faye Dunaway, Mommy Dearest, did not help her legacy at all, as one would expect. And so, of course, she lost out on a lot of fans and it damaged her legacies, you could say irreparably. Because, you know, it's kind of sad that something like this will come out after she's dead and can't defend herself. And again, I don't take sides here because we don't know what happened. Only the people involved know. And of course, you have people on both sides who knew her well. Some who said that they did witness some of that cruelty. Like I remember reading that June Allison said that she saw some things that kind of corroborated what Christina Crawford said. But then you had people like Myrna Loy, who was a had a reputable character, uh, rep- uh, good character in Hollywood, she defended Joan Crawford and said that she never saw any of those things that were mentioned in that book. And Douglas Fairbanks Jr., her ex-husband, also defended her, saying that the Joan Crawford that he saw in Mommy Dearest was not the Joan Crawford he knew. And you got to give someone credit like that. Usually when a relationship ends, the mudslinging continues for decades, but Douglas Fairbanks never said anything disparaging about her, and they continued as friends. Even Franchot Tone never mentioned anything that, you know, alluded to the fact that Joan had this ulterior, cruel persona. So, you know, unfortunately, those things worked against her. Her rivalry with Betty Davis, the book Mommy Dearest, kind of damaged her legacy. She's still recognized as a great performer, a legend in Hollywood history, but she probably would be held in higher regard if those things didn't come out. So, you know, I invite you to look at her movie catalog, especially the work from the 1930s onward, from about 1939 to 1938. She did a lot. The bulk of her work was done there. And that was when she was a big star. That was when she got some of the best roles. You know, of course, she says that Norma Shearer took a lot of the other prestige pictures that she wanted. But either way, she was still an A-list star with the studio. And the studio, you know, is going to give her those roles to try to magnify her and to enhance their profitability. So... She definitely got plum rolls there. So I would recommend look at it in that sense. 1939 and 1938, you get her MGM years. And then, of course, 1945 to about 1959, you get the second half of her modern career. You know, her, her dominating years in Warner Brothers. And then, of course, her the swan song, as I call it, as the studio era was fading away. And you can see that Joan was taking more roles that were not up to her level. But she still made the best with what she had. So, you know, she was a great star. She won an Oscar. You know, she was nominated three times altogether. She had a huge impact. She, you know, seven movies with Clark Gable, a a legend. And you could see, you know, to do seven movies with the top acting star at that time says a lot about her talent. So definitely, you know, look at Joan Crawford's movie career with an open mind. Uh, Appreciate the good work and success that she had. And you will not be disappointed. She's definitely someone to be remembered. And hopefully her movie legacy will continue to be enhanced in the years and 
uh, that follow. So I thank you for joining me and listening to this episode, and there'll be many more to come. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye.